0: I'm going to make a quick announcement, and I hope I'm right here. Logan will correct me if I'm wrong on this. but. Uh, is next Sunday the day that we're going to start with the college? Okay, so uh, a lot of times we have a big group of college students here at Jefferson Street. Sometimes we have a smaller group and so uh, Logan's going to try to start a class on Sunday mornings for the the college age uh, students and it's going to start, it's going to be over in the Mission Center, uh, one of the rooms there. So if you're a college student or um, maybe uh, you have a grandchild or maybe you have a child that's a college student, it's going to be here over the holidays. Um, We're going to do this all the the way through the end of the year, uh, Logan's just kind of testing the water here uh, to see if we can get a group that, that are coming to Sunday school. And so, if you got any questions, if you don't know Logan, raise your hand. Logan, there he is, right there, and uh, and he'll help you out. So pray for that class as well. Uh, we're hoping uh, to get something started there for our, for our college days. They already do a lot of stuff together, um, but they just don't have a class. Uh, so we're hoping that'll that'll change real soon. If you're in Philippians 3, say Amen. All right. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share... His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, this morning we know that uh, the God of the Word has to be the one who reveals the Word of God. And so we rely on You this morning. And we ask that by Your presence, Your Holy Spirit, would take your, Your words and apply them to the hearts of Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. I love to hear a good testimony of salvation. And the reason that I love to hear a good testimony of salvation is because normally someone who's listening can relate to it. Uh, Paul was a person who was known to share his testimony of salvation on a regular basis. But the thing about Paul's testimony is it was so different than than the average testimony that you might hear. Uh, Paul's not going to start out his testimony by saying, you know what, I know what it's like to be a drunk because I used to be one. I know what it's like to be strung out on drugs because I used to be that. Or I know what it's like to be an atheist because I used not to believe in God at all. That that was not part of Paul's testimony at all. This was Paul testimony. I used to be a false teacher. Amen? I used to be a false teacher and I'm not anymore. By the way, that's probably one of the reasons Paul was so passionate when he was talking about false teaching. Because he knew what it was like to be wrapped up in it. For for around 30 years, until he was almost 30 years old, he was wrapped up in false teaching. He thought he knew how a person was made righteous before God. Uh, but when he was saved on that road to Damascus in, in Acts chapter 9... His life was completely turned upside down. And he realized that everything that he had believed and everything that he had taught had been completely untrue. And so he spent the rest of his life teaching people what the true way of righteousness is. And so this morning, I want to show you three things here that Paul teaches us about righteousness from this text. The first thing I want you to see is this. Uh, There's only one group of righteous people. There's only one group of righteous people. We see that in verses 1 through 3, but in verse 1 you'll see that Paul shows you that this truth must be repeated. This truth must be repeated. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says he's writing the same thing to them that he's already told them. You see, Paul had no problem in repeating himself, and he gives two reasons in verse 1 that he repeated himself. Number one, he said, well, it's no trouble for me to do that. In other words, it didn't bother him. He could preach the same gospel over and over and over, and it didn't bother him a bit. And as well, it didn't bore him to preach the same gospel over and over. He loved the gospel. Any good preacher is going to repeat himself, right? Now, I know there's always people who are going to come in. They're going to say, oh, oh, preacher, I need something new. I need something new. Well, listen, if you find something new, you won't find it in the Bible because everything in the Bible is old. The Bible says there is nothing new under the sun. And why in the world would you want anything new? Are we bored with the gospel? So when you think about why does the preacher repeat himself, it's a pretty simple reason. Preachers who are true preachers of God repeat themselves because the gospel is the same. It hasn't changed. The devil is the same. He hasn't changed. God is the same. He hasn't changed. Human nature is the same. It hasn't changed. Eternity is the same. There's still only one heaven, and there's still only one hell. And so for that reason, any person who preaches the truth is going to repeat himself a lot. Because there's nothing new under the sun. But the second thing I want you to see here is he says not only you know it, it doesn't bother him, but he said it's safe for you for me to do this. Whether they realized it or not, they needed to hear the same things over and over again so that they would not wander away from these things. I mean, think about it. When you got married, I hope you told your wife you loved her. Amen? Now, have you repeated yourself since then? I hope. I hope you've told her again. Yeah, I love you. I love you. I love you. When your child drove the car for the very first time, I'll guarantee you, parents, you said be careful. Amen? And maybe they're 50 years old and you're still telling them, right? Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Why? Because anything worth saying is worth saying a lot of times. It's worth repeating over and over. Now the context here is false teachers. And the church needed to be reminded on a daily basis that the devil is real and he's out there trying to destroy the church. He's busy teaching people the wrong way to achieve righteousness. And so this constant reminder would help the church to continually be on guard, understanding that Satan is always trying to convince the world that there's another way to be made right with God other than the way the Scripture teaches. Now, the second thing we see here is there are false teachers who preach a false gospel. We see that in verse 2. He says, there, Look out for dogs. I want you to notice that, that Paul is warning the people. Three times in verse 2, he uses look out. And, and look at his description of these people. First of all, he calls them dogs. Now, now to, to the Jewish person, the term had serious implications. It was used as a derogatory word. We, we, it's, a, it's a term of endearment in our culture. What up, dog? Oh, he's my dog. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case, okay, in in, in the Old Testament. It wasn't the case with the Jewish people. You remember when Goliath uh, was approached by David and he laughed and he said, Am I a dog that you come at me with staves? And so to call someone a dog in that culture was was an insult to them. Now I want us to think about dogs for a minute and how they relate to what Paul's talking about. First of all, dogs have a a keen sense of smell. Dogs can pick up a trail and follow it wherever it leads. And these false teachers were like dogs. Whenever Paul would go into a town, they would pick up his trail and they would follow him right in that town, and they would try to undo everything that he had done. He'd go to another town and they'd do the same thing. It seemed that these guys were always on his tail. They were always trailing him, trying to do damage. Another thing about dogs in that culture, we're talking about undomesticated dogs here, these dogs would devour anything. They would eat anything. And these false teachers had no regard for the souls of people. They would come into a church and they would just devour the people. They would tear the church apart for their own pleasure. You know, many times in Scripture the, uh, we see dogs eating the remains of humans. And, and we see that because it was a sign of great humility because it removed the, the possibility of a, of a decent burial. The most famous person to be eaten by dogs in Scripture is Jezebel. Remember her? Everything but her hands and her feet uh, and her head was, was eaten there. The third thing about dogs is, is that to the Jewish person, dogs are an unclean animal. And these false teachers may have appeared to be moral, but the reality was they were sinful through and through. By the way, Deuteronomy 2318, um, in, in Deuteronomy 23:18, uh, a male prostitute was called a dog. It was another word for a male prostitute there. Another thing about dogs is, is, is they're cruel. When you look in Scripture, they have no regard for Christ or His people. In Psalm 22, verse 16, when Jesus is describing Himself on the cross, He says that He is surrounded by dogs. You remember in Luke 16, 21, when Lazarus was there, and he was so sick and he was dying, it says, dogs surrounded Him and they were licking His sores. Why do you think they were licking His sores? They were licking His sores because they liked the taste of blood. And their hope was that he would die soon. And that when he died, that those dogs would be there. And they would devour him. They would, they would eat him. And so we see here that, that dogs are cruel. And then in Revelation 22.15, dogs are shut out of the kingdom. The Bible says in heaven there are no dogs. And it's not talking about furry creatures here. It's talking about a, a moral sense here. Regardless of how sure these false teachers may have been of their own salvation, they were void of any saving grace at all. And they would spend time, spend eternity, that is, with the rotting corpses that they loved to devour when they were on this earth. There's nothing in heaven that pleases dogs until they're not there. But then he says, not only are they dogs, not only do you need to watch out for the dogs, he says, watch out for the evildoers. These are people who are putting a stumbling block before the people of God. These are people who are a hindrance to the gospel. Paul's trying to get the gospel to these people, trying to take it to them. And in front of him, here come the false teachers creating a blockade. I don't know if you remember this or not, but in September of 2020, two Los Angeles police officers were ambushed and they were shot in their car. They were taken to the hospital. And those who were protesting against the police went to the hospital where these men were fighting for their lives. Blocked the entrance to the emergency room and began to yell and chant, We hope they die. We hope they die. We hope they die. The people protesting didn't shoot the cops now, but they had a message they wanted to get across. And in sharing that message, they were blocking off access to people who needed their lives saved. It got so bad that the sheriff's office had to put out a message that said, do not block emergency entries and exits to the hospital. People's lives are at stake when ambulances can't get through. I think we can all agree that those people are evildoers. Amen? Anyone who would put a blockade in front of an emergency room to get their point across. And the idea here is that's what these false teachers had done. Paul was trying to get the life-saving gospel to these people. Trying to make sure that their souls were saved. And here come the false teachers creating a blockade. They are evildoers, he says. And then he says that they mutilate the flesh. Now what is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about circumcision. These false teachers were Jewish and they were teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. The Jews were known as the circumcision. It was a title they enjoyed. They liked. We are the circumcision. But Paul, he's not going to call them that in this text here because he doesn't want to give them that much respect. He's saying, you know, sure, you've cut a piece of your flesh off. But that cutting away of the flesh that you did was no different than what pagans do. Because pagans would often, in order to try to get their God to recognize them, they would cut their own bodies. A good example of that, if you remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28, you remember the story there with Elijah, when these false prophets were trying to get their God to react, and they couldn't, they began to cut themselves. And so we think about these people, and Paul puts them in the same category as the mutilators. Which, by the way, would have been a great insult to the Jewish people. He says, you know, you think you're circumcised. He says, you've done nothing but mutilate yourself. Because it's not helped you at all when it comes to salvation. And then in verse 3, Paul describes those who are truly righteous. Look at what he says there, y'all. He says, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Look at the description here. Who are those who are truly circumcised in heart? Who are those who truly belong to God? Number one, those who worship by the Spirit of God. The religion of the Pharisees and these false teachers was dry and dead because they weren't truly worshiping God. They mistakenly thought that by their external works, they somehow pleased God. Jesus clarified what true worship is when He says God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus gave us two important truths right there. Number one, worship has to be based on truth. And the truth is the Word of God. And the Word of God declares that we're made righteous by faith, therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it has to be based on truth. And secondly, Jesus said, worship is a spiritual act. In other words, it has to come from inside you. It's not a ritual. It's not works. It's more of who we are than it is what we do. And the second thing he says about those who were the true circumcision is this. He says they glory in Christ Jesus. They glory in Christ Jesus. That means they give Christ the credit for all their salvation. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are redeemed are fully aware that they did not redeem themselves. Amen. Those who are saved know without a shadow of a doubt that they did not save themselves and therefore they live in humility before the Lord. They glory in Christ. They give Christ the credit for their salvation. And the third thing he said, those who are of the true circumcision is this. He said they put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. The Scripture teaches that that even our most virtuous deeds are stained by the filthiness of our flesh. Isaiah tells us that, 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 that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And any attempt that you and I would, would try to take to, to get God's favor by works is, is tainted because it's, 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 it's done with dirty hands. Think of yourself. You've, you've got dirty hands. Your hands are, are filled with blood or mud or something. And there you are. And everything you touch what becomes dirty. Everything you touch, no matter how pure it is, it becomes dirty because your hands are dirty. And that's the idea, folks. We cannot with sinful hands, we cannot as sinners please God to the point where He saves us because we're engaged in good works. Folks, we put no confidence in the flesh it wasn't God did 50% and I did 50%, or even God did 70% and I did 30%, or even God did 90% and I did 10 It's God did it all. 100%. We've got zero confidence in our flesh. And so we see here in this first point that there's only one group of righteous people. And this group of righteous people is the blood ball. This group of righteous people is the blood washed. This group of righteous people is those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. Now the second point I want you to see here is in verses 4 through 6. Righteous people do not trust in themselves. Paul says, you know, if, if anyone could have been saved by human means, it would have been me. And then he lists a lot of reasons that he could have trusted in himself for salvation. I'm going to break it down into three categories for you here. We see first of all, verses 4 and 5, his heritage. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law required. And why is it listed first? It's listed first because in the Jewish mind, it was the most important thing. It was the sign of the covenant. And the fact that he was circumcised the eighth day shows that he was not a convert to Judaism. It's not something that he did a little later in life. He was born to Jewish parents faithful Jewish parents, and they made sure that he was there to be circumcised on the correct day. He says next that he was a citizen of the nation of Israel. And then he backs that up again by saying that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, here was a man who not only was an Israelite, but he knew the tribe that he was from. He was named after another man from that tribe who was the first king of Israel. King Saul. Paul's name is Saul. Saul. And so we see here his heritage. And then look what he says. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? That's an odd statement. Well, a lot of the Jewish people in that day, because of war and because the Jewish nation had been destroyed, the people had been dispersed in all different areas. And most all Jewish people had adopted the customs of the Greeks. These became known as Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews because they had adopted the culture of the Greeks. Paul says, not me. I've not adopted the culture of the Greeks. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I stay true to my Jewish roots. And so we see here, he says, look at my heritage. If you could be saved by heritage, man, I'd be saved. Because I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see his accomplishments his accomplishments there. He says that he was a Pharisee. This was a group of people who developed between the Old and New Testament. And the reason that they developed was actually a pretty good one. They were trying to keep the patriotism and the Jewish religion alive. They recognized that they were being placed in an area in history in which they could completely forget their roots. Completely forget who they were. And those who were the most orthodox Jewish people, these were those who were Pharisees. And to be a Pharisee was to achieve one of the highest levels of status that a Jewish man in that culture could ever imagine. And then he said that he was a persecutor of the church. Paul says that he was so zealous for the Jewish religion that he attempted to stop Christianity by force. We go and we see in Acts 9 that he was commissioned by the high priest to go and do that exact thing. You remember when Stephen was stoned, when Stephen was killed, who was there making sure that Stephen died? It was Paul. It was Paul who was saying, "This is the right thing to do. Kill this man of God. Kill Stephen." The Bible says that Paul made havoc of the church. That he caused people to run from their lives, for their lives that he took Christians to prison. He had such a reputation of violence that after he got saved, it was hard to convince any Christian to want to be around him because they thought it was a trick. They thought He's just trying to get close to us so He can take us to jail. Paul never denied the horrible things he did before he came to Christ. But he also said this. He said in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. Paul never forgot that. He never forgot the terrible sins that he did in that. And so he says, you want to talk about zeal? Man, I was so zealous. I was so committed. I was a Pharisee. I was so zealous. I was so committed. I was killing Christians. And then the third thing here, he says he was blameless according to the law. What does that mean? Well, he kept it. It was serious to him. The dietary laws, the feasts, the holy days. This was a sincere Jew. He was sincerely wrong, but he was sincere. Paul says, you know, if anybody could be saved by the law, it would be me. Now, we look at that and we think, well, that's odd because I don't really have to deal with any of that in my life. Well, there are still some of us even who may think like Paul used to think. We may think, well, because of my heritage, I have this leg up. Because of my heritage, I'm just automatically close to God. Listen to me, church. Being an American isn't going to get you into heaven. It's not. If being a Jew couldn't get you into heaven... Being an American is not going to get you into heaven. Having a mom or dad who loves the Lord is not going to get you into heaven. Being patriotic and committed to traditional values like Paul was is not going to get you into heaven. Listen to me, folks. You can be a conservative and be lost. A religious conservative, a political conservative, doesn't matter. Paul was both of those things. We should never think that you and I are going to get into heaven because of our heritage. We're not going to get into heaven based on our accomplishments. God's not going to say, man, I tell you what, you really stuck the high school thing out, and boy, then you went to college, and look at all those things you got on the wall there. In fact, none of that stuff even comes with you to heaven. Graduating with a degree isn't going to get you there. Working double shift for 20 years isn't going to get you there. And we're not going to get to heaven because we're a good person. Morality and charity and sincerity, none of those things are going to get us into heaven. I remember one time a lady got so mad at me, which is not uncommon. A lady got so mad at me because I was preaching and, and I was talking about Gandhi. And I was talking about the accomplishments that Gandhi had in his life. But I said, you know, Gandhi even though he had all these accomplishments in his life, I said he he died a lost man and he didn't go to heaven because his faith wasn't in Christ. He didn't believe in Jesus. He he said that. He, He admitted, I'm not a Christian. And that lady got so upset with me that she left the church and never came back. Simply because I said that Gandhi, even though he was a good person, was lost because he didn't have Christ. It amazes me how people will get upset with you when you tell them that they can't buy their own ticket to heaven? You can't do it, folks. If you're trusting in yourself for salvation, no matter how good of a person you are, no matter how much you've accomplished, no matter how moral you are, folks, none of that matters. None of that is going to get you into heaven. You're not righteous in the eyes of God if you're trusting in yourself at all. That's why Paul said he put zero, no confidence in the flesh. And that brings us to verses 7-11, through the most important of this text. That righteous people trust in Christ alone for righteousness. Now, hope in Christ means that we abandon hope in anything else. When you look here, it's like Paul's making a loss and a profit column. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's looking at his life and he's arranging everything in his life into two columns. He said, whatever gain I had, now I have moved that gain over into the loss column. So here, heritage was in the gain. Now he moved it to the the loss column. Accomplishments were in the gain. Now he moved them to the the loss column. Uh, Good works were in the gain. Now he moved them to the loss column. All of that was a liability to him now. Because none of that stuff helped him. And notice in verse 7, he uses the past tense of count. He says counted. Then in verse 8, he uses the present tense of count. Listen to me read it here for you. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see how the tense changes there? You say, well, why does that matter? What does that mean? It means that when Paul got saved, he counted everything he had done as loss, but then after he got saved, he continued to count his accomplishments. Loss. You see that the point is this is, is we don't trust in ourselves for salvation before we're saved, and we don't trust in ourselves for salvation after we're saved. Counted, count. Past tense, present tense. In Paul's prophet column, on his profit and loss, there's only one thing, y'all. He said, There's only one thing in my prophet column, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He said, the worth is not in my heritage, it's not in my accomplishments, it's not in my works. The worth is in knowing Christ. You know, cargo is of less value to a sinking ship, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you're carrying on that boat, man. If all of a sudden the boat starts th- sinking, all of a sudden what really matters becomes a reality. Think of it like this. Paul realized he was on a sinking ship when it came to his salvation. And he begins to throw aboard all the cargo that he used to think was so precious. All of the heritage, all of the works, all of the accomplishments. He's tossing it overboard, man, because he understands now it's a liability to him. Trusting in those things was actually keeping him from being saved. In the same way that leaving all that cargo on the ship might be the reason the ship sinks. Toss it over. You know, when children are small, I, I, I realize this when my kids are small. They don't really understand the value of money. You say, children, man, mine are 20 and still don't understand the value of money, brother. God. Well, it's like this: like you could give kids like two shiny quarters, and they're playing with those quarters, and then you say, "Hey, I got a dollar. You want this?" And they're like, "No, I got two of these." Why would I want that one thing? These are shiny. That's not that shiny. They'll keep those two quarters because they don't understand value. And there's a lot of people like that with their works. They have their quarters in their hand. They they, they have their works in their hand. And they believe that they hold some value. But Paul says, you know what? Knowing Christ is of more surpassing worth than any pennies of human works that we could ever hold in our hands. And so we have to let go. We have to let go of those works. Let go of the pennies that are in our hands. And we have to take hold of the pearl of great price. Which is Christ Jesus. Paul says that, that, that he counted his works as rubbish. Very strong word in the Greek. It actually means manure. Paul saw all of his human works as just a, a great, giant landfill of waste. Folks, understand this. God offers you His righteousness. But when you compare your righteousness to His, your righteousness doesn't stand a chance. My righteousness and your righteousness is like a garbage pile. Take a ride out to the landfill. Smell the air out there. It's not too nice. Look at the heaps of trash out there. Not too nice. Watch all the buzzards, man, as they circle over that landfill. Not a nice place. That's the illustration here. It's like going to God with a giant landfill of human waste and saying, here God! It's not impressive at all. Not at all. And that's what it looks like to bring your human works to God and say, God save me, look at all that I've done. When you look at verse 9, we see that Christ Himself is the righteousness of the believer. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own. In other words, my righteousness doesn't come from a religious system or a moral code. It comes through faith in Christ. He says it comes from God and God gives it to us. And how does He do that? Well, look at the beginning of verse 9. It says we are found in Him. That means we are wrapped up in Him. The Bible speaks of a robe of righteousness wrapped around us. What is that, church? It's imputed righteousness. Righteousness that was given to us. God gave us this righteousness through Christ. How does the transaction occur? How does that righteousness come? It comes through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God is given to me. Now, some people may say, "Well, that just sounds too easy." When it is simple, it's not easy at all. It's simple, but there's another part here that that's really important because. This really reveals if a person has truly received that righteousness. Look at verses 10 and 11. Righteous people want to know Christ. He says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means I might attain the resurrection from the dead. See, this is how you know. This is like the test. Have I been made righteous before God? Has the righteousness of Jesus been imputed to me? If it has, you want to know Jesus. You want to learn about him. You want to worship him. You want his resurrecting power in your life to overcome sin and have victory in the world, over the world, over the flesh, over the devil. And you're willing to suffer. Paul said he wanted to be like Jesus in his death. In other words, remember back in chapter 1, he was, I'm sorry, chapter 2, he was obedient unto death. Paul says, man, I want to be obedient until the very day that I die. I want to endure to the end. And I'm willing to endure everything, anything, because I look forward to seeing Christ. I look forward to the completion of my salvation, which is the resurrection from the dead. The reason he mentions resurrection from the dead there is because our salvation isn't truly complete until then. At the great resurrection in the last day, that's when our salvation is completely finished. So you see here that when Jesus is your righteousness, church, He's your everything. He's your everything. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you love Him this morning? Do you think about Him? When you think about being righteous, is the first thought that comes into your mind Jesus? Amen? Not not my own works, but is it Jesus? Do you love Him this morning? Do you think about Him every day? Is He alone, your righteousness? When someone says, why are you going to heaven? You don't say, Jesus and. Amen. You say, Jesus. That's the only reason. And without Him, I'm not getting there. You see, the only one you're trusting for your salvation this morning, friend, I hope He is, I pray He is. And friend, if you don't know Him, He calls to you, come to me and find the way of righteousness. This is how a man or a woman is made right with God. Recognize your need for Christ. You're a sinner. You have rebelled against God. Recognize your need. Repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again for you. And call on His name. And when you do that out of a sincere heart, Christ Himself will become your righteousness. Oh, friend, you don't have to... Have anybody but you and the Lord there. Amen. Call on His name. He'll save you. Thank you, Lord, for this word this morning. A very important word as we're going through the book of Philippians.